create lasting change, inspire others, and make a difference. You have joined the Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donaldson, and each week you will hear from distinguished co-hosts and guests as they share insights into impacting our culture from your neighborhood to the nations. One of the most prevalent questions I'm asked from churches and nonprofit organizations is, how do I win grants? And when I hear that question, I immediately think of Terry Hasdorf. And let me tell you, if I read her entire bio, it would take up all of our time. Uh, But uh, Terry is president and CEO of a woman-owned small business called Capital Solutions Consulting. And she consults with really many well-known organizations and companies. Uh, Prior to that, she served as the director for the Center for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives at USAID. Uh, She served uh, in the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives for the governor of the state of Alabama. And I remember uh, going down there and speaking at one of her huge events and Also, she worked uh, in the White House Office of Public Liaison, and believe me, folks, that's just a tidbit of her experience and accomplishments, and she's still young. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dave. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Well, today we're going to talk about winning grants, and I know for many of our listeners, it's like, don't get near that government money. It has all those strings attached. I love what William Booth said, the founder of Salvation Army, said the only problem with tainted money is it taint enough. <laughs> and the fact is, it's it's our money. It's taxpayers' money. And you and I have been doing this for a long time. And it's not just about garnering public funds, but he who has the funds or she who has the funds, uh, also makes the rules. And those organizations become the recommended social service provider. So there's a lot at stake. Yes, there is. And I think one of the biggest things that, you know, there's a a misperception out there by a lot of churches and nonprofits that are faith-based that if you take government funding, that means that, you know, the government's going to come in and tell you how to run your program. And, uh, you know, there are some circumstances where that can happen if you set your program up incorrectly, but um, that fear uh, needs to be uh, alleviated in a lot of ways because as long as you structure uh, what you are going after Caesar's money, so to speak, to, um, to fund, uh, then, you know, if you structure it separately, then the government is never going to be coming in and, and telling you how to run the rest of your programs. It's just going to be the piece that you go after government funding for that. Yes, they will want to know how you spent their money, but there's ways to separate that out to keep things that are overtly faith-based that have an evangelism component to it separate. And um, so that's one of the biggest fears that I think a lot of people that come to me for advice uh, have. Let, let's drill down on that a little bit. I know our good friend, uh, Amy Sherman, 
would equate that to the difference between a brownie and a salad. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a brownie, the ingredients cannot be separated. So it's, let's say, faith saturated. So if your program is evangelism and discipleship, you shouldn't be going for public funds. But a salad, you know, that carrot could be the evangelism discipleship, but the lettuce could be housing. Uh, you could have the, you know, other parts of that salad that can provide, you know, financial literacy, all these different types of programs. Talk with us some more about how you can separate that out. Sure. Well, you you nailed it. Amy had the best example for that. And I think, you know, um, making sure that uh, you have something separated either by time or by space is what the government is looking for. So it doesn't mean that you can't hold a uh, after school learning program, a literacy program at a facility where you also have a Bible study. It just needs to be separated by time or space. You could have the Bible study in the morning and the literacy program in the afternoon. You could have the Bible study going on in the same building, but in a separate area, completely separate room, but uh, still host the literacy program that's funded with government funding. But as long as they're kept separate, there won't be an issue. It's just if you are requiring people to come to your program for the literacy uh, education training, and then you are also forcing them to go to a Bible study or some other type of religious service, that's where it would trigger an issue. I know there are those though that would fear that when you start taking public funds that it's you know the proverbial camel head under the under the tent that you're now opening up your your books and programs to government you know intrusion i remember uh, ronald reagan used to say that uh that if you get in bed with government, you'll never get a good night's sleep. <laughs> you know, keep one eye open. So how 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 does an organization, a church, though, create that firewall? Well, the very best thing that they could do is set up a separate nonprofit that is geared from the get-go towards being something that would be structured for government funding. And that way, your tithe money is not getting mixed with your tax money. You don't want to have your church books being audited. And yet, if the government is putting money through that uh, organization, which, to be honest, is fairly rare, um, in my time at USAID, we only funded one church that was nothing other than a church. And that was a church in South Africa that was doing phenomenal work with HIV AIDS. And the PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief Money, was something that they went after and did a phenomenal job of administering. But that's rare. Normally for most churches, it's a very big jump to go from running their books the way a church runs to administering tax payer grants or other types of funding. So um, setting up a separate organization is, is highly advisable. Now let's talk about the different funding opportunities that are available through the government at the state and really the federal, state, and local levels. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, there are um, a lot of resources for nonprofits and faith-based organizations that are interested in pursuing those types of funding. On the local level, foundations, like even just a community foundation that would be right there in your in your home county um, that may have, uh, you know, anything from uh, small grants to opportunities for you to tap into 
um, donor advised funds or other things that um, high net worth people have set aside for specific things for that community. And then on the state level, um, each state has, uh, most, most states have a, a nonprofit resource center. You can go to the National Council of Nonprofits website and look for the information about what your state has to offer with that. Um, I highly recommend checking with them because they have a lot of trainings and resources for nonprofits in the state. And then the National Council of Nonprofits has some on the, on the national level. And then uh, when you look at funding on the federal level, well, that's where there's an enormous amount. It can almost become overwhelming for a lot of nonprofits. So what you need is something that can kind of help narrow it down specifically to the areas that you have most interest in. Um, I like uh, GrantStation. The Foundation Center has some good resources. Um, most nonprofits will utilize a service that does nothing other than cull through all of the millions sometimes of grant opportunities that are out there and uh, micro-target what it is that you specifically are looking for. Excellent. How does a an organization or church know which grants are the right fit for them? Well, like, uh, like anything else in life, you know, you really want to do your homework and be prepared. Um, it's, it's a lot like doing your taxes on steroids (laughs) when you are going after a grant, if it's a very large grant. So you obviously want to start at a level that isn't going to be, um, too much, too fast. Um, with some small nonprofits, if you gave them too much money, it would blow them up. It's just, they're not ready for it yet. So you want to start small. You want to build as you are able, um, and then, um, you know, I, I tell people, don't try and be the Walmart of social services. Just pick one or two areas that you're already in, that you're going to be in long after that government funding dries up. Don't reinvent the wheel and come up with some new area just to chase funding. Look for something that you're good at, that you're already known for, and then use this to expand that and help you do even more of what you already do well and do it even better. Excellent advice. What are the pieces that need to be brought together uh, to apply for a grant or contract? Well, first and foremost, you need to work with your staff that are going to be actually implementing the grant if it's awarded. So, you know, that budget narrative that every grant is going to have as a requirement has to be something that they are hand in glove in the process for. Um, You are literally applying. It's like applying for a job interview. You know, you have to think about who you're going to have on your staff to implement certain pieces, their resumes, um, their expertise will be part of this process from start to finish. And then looking at having the right people to help you write that grant Typically, what I advise most nonprofits, if they're small and they're just getting started, grants can be um, overwhelming and cumbersome, but it also can be quite expensive to hire um, a professional grant writer. So try and do as much of it on your own as you possibly can. And then many times what is really uh, recommended is to hire somebody who is really skilled to just come in and do a final read on the application before it's submitted. And then that way you're only paying for their time for that final read you're not having to pay for them to assemble the whole thing from start to finish. And that can save a lot of money. Great advice. What are the components of a winning grant? Well, you know, a good grant writer is part journalist, part uh, accountant, part um, storyteller. I mean, there's so many pieces to a grant that's written well. 
Um, you really need to have uh, somebody who not only knows how to tell your story and do it in a way that um, uh, explains not only what you're doing now, but your future vision for where you want to go, but also you want to have somebody who understands what that federal agency or community foundation or, or whoever the entity is that you're applying to is looking for. Typically, those grant applications are something where um, you need to salt in language that is very specific to what that funder wants to hear. And if you don't do that, um, it can it can make it difficult. So sometimes you may be saying the exact same thing as what they're wanting, but you're using different language than what they're used to hearing. And that grant reviewer may not find it as palatable as if you are able to hone in specifically on the focus words that they they are most interested in funding and make your application tailored to that. Now, is there an opportunity for smaller organizations to perhaps a partner with a larger organization as a sub-grantee? Yes, you absolutely hit the nail on the head, Dave. That's exactly what I always recommend. When you're small, um, the best thing you can do is, especially if it's a federal agency that you're trying to connect in with, um, go to, um, once you identify what grant opportunities you're you know interested in, talk to somebody who's a, a, a program officer or somebody who's dealing with the grants and ask them, um, who are some other large organizations that are already getting this funding? And see if they'll put you in touch with them. Um, each federal agency has a, an office of faith-based and community initiatives that can help with that kind of connecting. And once you find a larger organization, you can be a sub-grantee to them. Um, that can foster a lot of mentoring, which can be very useful. And it gives you qualifications on your own so that when you apply to be a primary grant applicant yourself, you now have some, some street cred. Well, if anybody would know, it'd be you because you have been on both sides. Uh, <laughs> first applying for the grants and the person that is approving the grants. Uh, so this is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, Terry, I know there's going to be a lot of questions our listeners have. Uh, where could they go to find more information about this? Well, you know, if you're looking for information on just the grant process in general um, and how to research out good grants, um, like I said, I really like GrantStation. They have a lot of resources. Uh, the National Council of Nonprofits has a lot of resources. And then, you know, if you're uh, looking for help with connecting in to um, specific resources around one or two areas that that um, are issue specific, um, I always say, you know, look for somebody else who is who is already doing this um, and just reach out to them direct and say, we're new at this. We're we're looking to uh, partner with you or at least get your advice on what's the best way to connect. So for instance, if you are a small nonprofit and you're looking to uh, go after funding for, um, you know, substance abuse treatment or something um, along those lines, well, you would want to look for someone who's already getting funding in that area and then contact their offices and see if there's somebody they can put you in touch with that could give you some guidance. Super. Is there any closing thoughts or instructions or admonition that you would give before we close? You know, I think one of the most important things for um, somebody who's starting out with this is take it slow. 
don't don't bite off more than you can chew, but um, also look for the right partners to have around you. Sometimes it's worth it to spend the extra money and um, hire somebody who's a professional right off the bat. Um, who can guide and direct you in the right ways because there's a lot of scam artists out there. Um, there's a lot of places where, unfortunately, people are unscrupulous in the way that they go about trying to do this. Um, so it's really important to find the right resources and the right the right mentors. Um, but I, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing with this, Dave, by just letting people know where they can uh, go for this kind of information. I'm happy to always be a resource as well. And uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. One of the many ways that you have built the capacity of organizations is by helping them leverage their private resources with public funds. Mm. And in many cases, that can give that organization a leg up because right now they're already paying for all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So um, I'll tell you one other thing that a lot of um, nonprofits really don't utilize enough are public-private partnership models. Mm-hmm. And that's something that when I was at USAID, the lady who was the administrator of the agency at that time put a mandate on the agency to triple the number of public-private partnerships that were being implemented by USAID. Um, So I worked pretty heavily with that and saw the amazing ways that all three legs of the stool coming together can be leveraged to do exponentially more than it would be otherwise. Um, Right now, especially with the situation where our country finds itself and so many places around the world find themselves, um, we need all actors involved. Every single leg of the stool needs to be working in tandem. Um, uh, You know, what we've just faced is going to probably set back some of the uh, poverty um, goals that we've had by as much as 30 years, some people are saying. And so there's a lot of people that are going to have needs and there's a lot of people in need right now. And um, finding ways to be innovative is critical and leveraging those public-private partnership models is is something that um, we all need to do. And it's a great process, even if you don't win any public funds, because it helps you become more outcome-based, more professional, uh, more metric, you know, in your own evaluation of your organization and its programs. And so the process, even though, you know, it could be draining, it can truly raise the level of our effectiveness. Mm, Absolutely. You know, um, so many private sector companies want to do more. And um, what's hard is if you're a small organization, a small church or a small nonprofit trying to figure out, well, how do I get in touch with a Home Depot to ask them to help us with this project in our community? And one of the best ways to do that is to, to connect in through, once again, an intermediary that can leverage those kinds of partnerships on a broad spectrum because Home Depot, you know, can't be inundated by 500 small nonprofits all trying to come to them. But what they can do is look for an organization that um, can either be a government agency or it could be um, perhaps one central organization that is tied to um, leveraging those types of needs and then uh, work with them to give out funding. Excellent. Thank you so much, Terry. This has been helpful. And we really appreciate you being on the podcast. 
Thank you so much, Dave. It's been my honor. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy listening to Influencers on the Charisma Podcast Network. Join us next week for another thought-provoking episode. And remember to use your influence to move people closer to Jesus.